Hello and welcome to the Mangal Media Show in cooperation with Root Radio Live. I am Mangal Media Editor-in-Chief Efe Levant. To learn more about us and follow the articles discussed on the show, please visit our website www.mangalmedia.net. Mangal Media is supported entirely by reader donations. If you like our content and would like to see more of it, please check out our pledge options from our Patreon site. A monthly pledge of over $5 will give our readers digital access to our illustrated short fiction project, Guide to Every City. In today's episode, I will be joined by Anne Azevedo to discuss her article, The Circulation of Objects, Exploitation in the Digital Age, where she explores the political problems of heritage preservation in online environments. Since our subject is heritage, we will inevitably touch on local problems in heritage-related controversies, particularly within the context of Babri Masjid in India and Hagia Sophia in Turkey. Hello, I'm here with Azaveta, and we are going to talk about her recent article for Mangal Media, which was about heritage and its transformation in the online sphere. Uh, first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? uh i'm i'm from the global south mm-hmm. i was born here but i've kind of lived my life all over the place um and that's kind of really influenced the article as well because i feel like i don't know i when diving straight in when i came back to the country i was born in i i kind of I felt this culture shock that I never felt before and that came from moving around a lot and I that's that's kind of me. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the article was called The Circulation of Objects Exploitation in the Digital Age and you kind of not only talk about of course it's been talked about before the the idea of how cultural artifacts are removed from their country of origin and taken elsewhere. Would you add more to the conversation by talking about the kind of new uh, making these artifacts and heritage items accessible, quote unquote, through online technologies? And you're skeptical about this. I am. And in its essence, like on a very surface level, this is an excellent idea, making this accessible digitizing these artifacts, making it available to, especially in times like with Corona, where we're all on lockdown, we can go to these virtual museums. But then what I realized was the museums were not doing due diligence. Again, we're thinking about digital divides and thinking about um, the kind of narratives that they were going to take from the global curation. They weren't being careful. They weren't thinking about anything other than how does this benefit me? Not, am I like, am I doing more harm than I'm doing good? That weighing of the harm versus good was not happening again, which is something that is my main problem with that whole niche. Because I really don't think at this point of time, we've reached a stage where intent is no longer more important than impact. Mm-hmm. And in what way do you think uh, these institutions Wait, actually, first, before I dive into that, uh, I want to get back, I want to kind of focus on the article a bit more. Mm-hmm. And uh, your article is also interesting in the sense that it focuses uh, on a particular uh, online event. It did. 
And um, uh, yeah, I mean, I was just going oh, to go ask ahead. you. Sorry. T- no, no, no. I was just going to ask you, like, can you tell me about this online event and what, what was it about it? I think it was on May 2nd, if I'm not mistaken, that the art newspaper in together or sponsored by Factum Foundation uh, held this talk, this live stream talk where there was a representative from the Smithsonian, a representative from the British Museum, and there was another, uh, Anais Aguirre, I think that was her name. I can't remember which organization she was from, but those were the three people that stood out for me. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about they were supposed to be debating whether new technologies being brought into this museum was something novel and whether like what were the pros and what were the cons but what happened during that discussion was that they had it felt like they had a certain pitch about selling this new technology as something great and any narrative, any person that brought up a narrative that deviated even slightly away from that sales pitch was shut down and deterred from. There was one person of color, a woman of color on the panel, and she was the one person who kept bringing up the digital divide. The fact That's that the Bonnie digital Greer. divide was Bonnie Greer, exactly. Mm-hmm. And she kept bringing up that it was a color divide and that, that you cannot move into this next phase or this this new technological phase or whatever you want to call it without taking that into account that that if if this lockdown and this 2020 has taught us anything is that it's shown shown a really strong light on the cracks that we have in our infrastructure and she was really trying to bring out the fact that this cannot be ignored and that museums their social responsibility is to be a bridge between those who have and those who don't have. And every time she spoke, I think about, she's uh, almost almost every time the British Museum representative followed up from her and com- completely negated what she said, as well as just went off on his own tangent that really had nothing to do and like kind of went back to the sales pitch. And it was not an equally weighted discussion in the end. And I think they've missed a really big opportunity to kind of really be some kind of solution mm-hmm. in this problem. And this event was also kind of marketed as being about discussing not just the pros, but the cons also of, of this online access. Um, well, it was supposed to be a debate. And in my mind, okay. it was not blatant, but in my mind, you look at both sides of the argument. Was the what I would have expected. Which is an aspect which is also interesting because they are discussing the online presentation of artifacts in an online environment, uh, which was also necessitated by the pandemic, of course, which also it brings into the conversation in a real life panel, you would open for questions and somebody usually would ask a very awkward question that you did not want to be discussed in the panel, perhaps, especially something as controversial as this, where the opposing viewpoint was not discussed at all. Was this the case in in this online panel? There was a, well, they did a Zoom um, kind of structure. So there was an opportunity to send in questions to the chat function, I think. But I guess on their end, they were able to select the kind of questions they wanted to to answer. And I think that really made a difference. They did talk about digital colonialism. They kind of touched on it, mm-hmm. but in, in, in a way to kind of say, Oh, someone's asking about it. You know, 
it exists, we're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. What exactly do you mean by this idea of digital colonialism? I, um, well, to what I understand, I'm not super well versed on digital colonialism, but I, I, I take it to mean um, kind of colonizing the digital space where when there's an unequal, unequal balance of resources, those with the most resources in this sense, the Smithsonian's and the British Museum's and the Global North in general, will have rights to the material and like will be able to kind of dictate the frameworks in which these, the, even if you take the digitized collections, they dictate the frameworks in which they are presented to the, to the public. They just, they uh, decide what language. They, they decide how to group the objects. It's, it's all on their terms. It's like the, and when you think about colonialism, it's mostly about power. And I mean, there's a lot of different aspects, but one of them is definitely power. And in digital colonialism, I think the idea is that the power indifference has not changed from, well, 17th, 18th, 19th century colonialism. That power balance is still bleeding into today. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, digital colonialism basically means the kind of uh, curatorial frameworks that were established in the conventional museums are being carried into the digital atmosphere. That's a much more eloquent way of saying it than I did, yes. <laughs> well, can you, can you give us a few examples of the particularly problematic ways in which artifacts have been exhibited in museums? I think just on a personal level, when I go as someone who was born on the Indian subcontinent, when I go to, into, into a museum, every time I am in a room with Indian artifacts, they're all grouped together as Asian. Mm-hmm. But whereas if you go, there was this New Yorker kind of uh, cartoon where it says where you go to a European museum and you have European art, it's categorized by brushstroke, by movement, by by what the paint like which stage of his life he was in who who the painter was what his biography was but when you go to anything that is non-euro-american it's here's the whole continent all in one room Mm. and it just feels i think very kind of that's where the whole mr potato head idea came in Mm -hmm. it just felt very discombobulating so it's the kind of being generalized into being put into one category as opposed to, I mean, this is one of the fundamental things about the category of whiteness as people talk about also, because whiteness is often given the privilege of being, uh, what's the word, kind of unique and different, and they are each allowed to express their individuality in different kinds of ways. But when it comes to everybody else, mm, we are kind of perceived as being part of a mass. And there's, this is exactly. often done also in the sense that, you know, especially a lot when it comes to Islam, you know, but, oh, Islam is a different idea from us and they don't really value individuality, which we may or we may not. Uh, so they are, we should look at them all together as opposed to looking at them individually. And this is essentially a fallacy. Exactly. It's for whiteness, it's whatever is not me is you. 
Mm. I really don't really care what it is that makes you you. I don't care about your culture. I don't care about I don't care about the nuances within your like subcontinent. Like I've been told, oh, do you speak Hindu? That's not even <laughs> a language. Oh. It's a religion. It's just I don't know. It's just whatever's not white is other. And it's also the colonial relationship kind of reverses that, doesn't it? Because there was this one incident in Turkey that I recall quite vividly. Uh, there was this kind of uh, New Year's party, uh, maybe 2018, I guess. Okay. And a bunch of young Syrians, they were on this Taksim Square, which is like a big kind of gathering place in Istanbul. It's like the, the, the biggest square. And they have opened up Syria's independence era flag which is black, green, with the stars in the middle, uh, white in the middle and with the stars. And a lot, of, uh, a lot of Turkish people who had, you know, like a Western education, who identified themselves as like strongly secularists, they object, they, they, they call this flag the flag of ISIS uh, because it's not, you know, the official flag of Syria right now, which is owned by Assad, essentially. And it okay. just kind of reminded me that how clueless we are about the history of our own neighbors you know people who identify as kind of like well-educated secularists uh are they can tell you details about like the french revolution or whatever but they when it comes to their neighbor they don't even know what the syrian flag is definitely I, and i think yeah uh, that bleeds into sorry sorry no I'm no so sorry. go ahead go ahead that bleeds into something that kind of instigated this article in an in and of itself um i've grown up abroad i've had a british education that is the kind of mindset i came from and i was really grappling with something when i moved back to the place i'm living in right now for the first time it was the first time i'd lived here in in since i was like a child and i with the culture shock and everything that came came with moving back i was really angry because i felt uh, i felt that i didn't i didn't really understand this place that i was supposed to understand and more so than that i started reading why i'm no longer talking to white people about race and that book blew my mind in the fact that i didn't know that indian soldiers fought in world war ii something as basic as that i thought that it was called world wars because Europe and everyone involved thought they were the center of the universe. Uh -huh. And it was kind of like an in, inside joke, mm -hmm. but that really kind of stuck with me. And I was really angry at myself and at, at the way we do schooling at just all these infrastructures where they're giving you an un, un nuanced idea of actual history and actual things that happened. And you're not equipped to kind of look at the way, understand why things are the way they are right now in 2020, because you haven't had a proper, wholesome kind of education, a truthful education, I think. Do you feel like your own history has been sifted through kind of like a Western sieve and kind of fed back to you and that made you kind of unable to have like a real connection with your own history. Definitely. And I think that also translates into that kind of 
disconnect when I go to the museums and things like that. It all it's all part of this educational infrastructure, right? When you go into the museums and you look at Indian art, it's Asian art. And so you think, oh, I am kind of all these things together, but there's no nuance. I'm just this, I'm this thing that is not white. I am I am not white. I I am not your like Aryan kind of, you know, like blonde, white skin, blonde, blue eyes. You kind of end up defining yourself in the sen- in the ways that you are not instead of the ways that you are. And I realized that when I moved back and I was talking to people of my own age and the way they self-defined when growing up over here and having a kind of like a an education that is not put through that Western sieve, things are a lot different. And I don't know, I, that's kind of the ideas that were going around in my head when the whole idea of the article came up. I think this is, this is, this is especially the kind of aspect that I find fascinating about subjects like this, you know, even when talking about something as detached as heritage from, I don't know, hundreds of years ago, you look at it and you go, your relationship with this object or lack of relationship uh, either way has made you into a kind of person that you don't think you're supposed to be. Is that, is that what my understanding? Is that correct? Definitely. I feel like um, something is missing. I, I also went on this whole other tangent at that time about ancestors mm-hmm. and this of, yeah, not a uh, kind of like understanding what, what went into the independence movement, what my ancestors had to give up so that I could have the privilege and the freedom and the, like the liberties that I have right now. And I had never thought about that. And it all kind of started with that book. And in that, I think, I guess it was the isolation and just being stuck at home. I suddenly felt like this kind of weight, like I had let down those ancestors because I was, I was doing, I don't know, it's this idea of proximity to whiteness to kind of make yourself feel better, like make yourself feel worthy of being. And I felt a lot of like anger and shame that I had that mentality. And I felt like if my ancestors could see me now, would they be proud of the way I was leveraging the liberties and the freedom that they had fought for me to have or would they look at me and say like why are you pandering to the same people who kind of killed us essentially it is a very tricky place to be in uh, on the Definitely. one hand you've got you've got this relative privilege that you have earned uh, that was meant to I don't know, I guess make, make your country even more independent. That was the intention of your, of your family. But then it kind of turns into a potential source for self-hatred because it makes you feel like you are separated from your own heritage. Definitely. It's, the, it's, it's like that poem, Diaspora Blues, but a little different. Kind of like you're too foreign for home. You're too home for foreign. You kind of exist in between. Mm-hmm. And yeah. how does heritage come into this? 
I think I've always been fascinated by heritage just because I wanted to understand the connection that other people had with it that I didn't feel for it myself. And it was kind of, uh, I don't know, I wanted to feel that kind of um, connection to the past and connection to those who came before me, connection to those who made it possible for me to be here. And I just never felt that, felt that way. I, I felt the magnanimity of it. I felt that it was important. I just couldn't understand on an emotional level why people felt that way about heritage. And that's kind of why I slipped into the work I do because I was like, people feel so strongly about heritage. And I'm talking about local level, not national level, because that's a whole other different discussion. But on a local level, like community heritage, people in, people in fires and in disaster situations, people will risk their lives to save this, save tangible heritage. And I'd like to be part of helping facilitate that because I understand like that is something really important. Do you think, uh, do you think a really like an emotional relationship with a heritage is something that can be cultivated or is it something that like you're either born with it or you're not, you either have it or you don't. Is that something that you can acquire later in life? Do you think? I think, and I've, I've been learning or kind of understanding or unraveling this recently. I think that connection with heritage comes with, the the intangible elements that a lot of Euro-American institutions discount. And that was my problem with the, with the um, discussion as well, because it's those stories about the objects, it's those narratives, it's the oral traditions. That's what kind of um, activates the object and activates the heritage, the tangible heritage. And that's what, that's what builds that emotional connection to it. And then when you don't necessarily grow up with that, it, it makes sense that I didn't feel that I had that emotional connection with the tangible heritage that I was, well, on paper supposed to have. If so, that makes any sense. Uh, I'm a little bit confused. Okay. So Which you were part? saying you can develop a relationship with heritage in later life. I think you can because I don't think that relationship with heritage is something that you are born with. I think it comes with really investing in the intangible elements. So you learn the stories, you learn the rituals, you participate in the rituals, you kind of engage with the heritage. It's not something that you walk into a museum, look at and oh, it's so beautiful. I feel this kind of reverent experience. At least that's not been my experience. It's, it's understanding, um, understanding how these objects have been used for years and being part of something that at the same, uh, it, at one instance is between you and the people who are existing right now, but on a very existential level, knowing that this exact ritual has been done for like years and years and years and centuries, you're at the same time part of something really bigger. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like this weird existential metaphorical thing. I think the closest analogy I could think of is when you're at the concert, at a live concert, 
you're singing along and you're having this experience, but there's something beautiful, beautiful about knowing that every single person in that room is having a variation of that exact same experience in that exact same moment. It's like this, um, uh, was it, um, I forget the word, but it's like a microcosm, macrocosm kind of thing. You zoom in and out. Mm -hmm. Does that make more sense? It makes a lot of sense now. I, it just actually remind me, reminded me of something when I was studying anthropology uh, in London. We had like a guest speaker. Uh, she, was, uh, she was from Papua New Guinea. And uh, she was talking about the Papua New Guinean relationship with museums. And if you've been to, what was that museum? The really, really big museum in London. Um, I can't uh, believe the British I Museum, the British Museum, Albert. that's the one, that's okay. the British <laughs> Museum. Uh, in the British Museum, there's this room called the Enlightenment Room. Okay. And each time I go into that room, it kind of just freaks me out because it's kind of meant to be like an homage to the, the spirit of the first collectors because during the Enlightenment era, uh, these kind of enlightened European intellectuals, they were collecting artifacts out of just sheer curiosity without even kind of without the same kind of expertise in cataloging and understanding the background as we do now uh, and uh, the enlightenment room is still kind of uh they still give artifacts to the enlightenment room they're kind of like small artifacts okay and this woman uh, the guest speaker she was invited to london to bring I don't remember what the exact artifact was, but I think it was some kind of like a shark tooth or something okay. uh, to bring it to the uh, to the Enlightenment room. And in Polynesia, there is they have this kind of it's it's famous among anthropologists. Uh, I keep forgetting all the names of famous people and things today. Malinowski has a book about this, uh, about kind okay. of the, the, the gift exchange along the Polynesian islands. And usually when an important gift is given along this gift chain, it is accompanied by a song and dance and kind of like a, like a ritual ceremony. It's, it's kind of, it's all about establishing a relationship that's based on giving and receiving gifts. Mm -hmm. So uh, the speaker we had in the class, she kind of just spontaneously burst into song while giving this gift. Uh, and all of a sudden, the old security guard, he came over and he was like, I'm sorry, this is the British Museum, you're not allowed to do that here. Uh, which kind of, I think, describes uh, what you just talked about so well, because... Here we are in kind of like a vacuum space, like the British Museum, perhaps like the utmost example of the ultimate <laughs> yeah. museum, I think. And here is a person who is invited to contribute an artifact, and she is making an active effort to put this object into the context, uh, but she is forbidden from doing so. So... I suppose your your argument is not is not about suggesting a way that museums could be better in terms of uh, incorporating the, the the kind of the background of these objects, but you are suggesting a thoroughly radical rejection of the idea of the museum in itself. 
think so. And I, someone, someone asked me that recently, and I think that museums in the way that they are now have had their chance. It's been years, they've had years to have these conversations. They've had years to kind of introspect. And every time we see that they have been given this chance, they do not take it. And how long can you wait for someone to give you something that is your right before you say, hey, I, I, I'm not gonna wait for you to give it to me anymore. I'm gonna take it. I'm gonna come into this museum and I'm gonna do my ritual. I'm gonna come into this space. And I, it's kind of like the uncomfortable art tours that happen in the British Museum where she takes people through the museum and gives you the, the, the real story of how those artifacts and how those paintings got to where they are. There was slavery, there was genocide, there was a lot of really triggering and traumatic things that led to this collection. And when you look at this collection, you're not supposed to necessarily see only something beautiful, and also beauty is subjective. That's a whole other tangent. But what you have to see is it's time to see trauma. It's time to see that people lost their lives just so that you could have this beautiful painting or this beautiful artifact sitting in your museum for your global education or whatever you want to call it. And it being here is, is in a lot of ways depriving someone else who would who would be able to kind of activate it through the rituals and through the intangible heritage of what is essentially their cultural right. And it becomes an idea of, is your right to education in the British Museum as a British citizen, is it more important than the original stakeholders' right to culturally use that object that, was, that kind of came about within that culture? For its intended purpose. For its intended purpose, yes, exactly. Of course, one of the interesting things also is that a lot of the times, I mean, societies kind of leave behind the kind of rituals that were associated with certain artifacts, etc., etc. But then I suppose it is up to that society what to do then with the artifact that they used to use for a ritual that they used to make. Definitely. And I think I, I, I understand that this argument is very object specific. It doesn't necessarily work for all objects all around but i think it it's kind of just a thematic thematic uh, argument around these objects mm -hmm. and it's one that is not necessarily explored by the museums that hold them mm -hmm. like, it agitates me that i have to ask or like someone has to ask for permission to do their own like own cultural ritual or even that woman who is singing the song like how dare you stop her? Mm. How dare you do that? Who gives you that right to dictate mm. what can be done with that object that you have stolen, by the way? The, it kind of, again, comes back to the idea of like whiteness being as kind of the background for neutrality, because the idea that a museum is supposed to be a quote-unquote neutral place, and a neutral place is supposed to not have the rituals of anybody, but again, the idea of neutrality is so parochially determined by whiteness here that it becomes very difficult to take it seriously. Definitely. I think that museums are neutral. It, it's very interesting because 
when it depends on what kind of group you're in in having this discussion in this like heritage niche when there are it's a predominantly white group you will have the debate of whether museums are neutral or not whereas when it's mostly um people who are not white and people especially if you have um kind of like an immigrant background you you have this deeper level of kind of debate that happens because you've taken it as truth as fact that museums are not neutral you don't have to have this ridiculous debate kind of proving to someone something that is real and i don't know i sometimes i wonder if i don't know i if we have to just be like more people of color have to be more careful about the spaces in which we discuss these things and it's i don't think that i think sometimes when i don't know how to put this in the very uh politically correct manner but that was my problem with the discussion as well and the idea of crowdsourcing this information and putting it on the platform like a global curation it's that who gets to use this collected data in the end when you have scholars from the peripheral world you are at a disadvantage because your education when it is done in the peripheral world is not always accepted and so you can use the same data the same data from the collected narratives on that platform and if a of a scholar who has been educated in the euro american north uses that same data they will get published and they will kind of reap the benefits whereas the peripheral world scholar can have the same article or similar insights and it will not be accepted and i think this knowledge i think that we need to start looking at this in this knowledge this peripheral world knowledge as something that is a leverageable resource and to kind of hold these institutions in accountable for the harm they're causing you want access to my information what are you going to give me in return like what 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 it can be as easy as like looking at these institutions and what their lobbying policies are right what kind of politics are they supporting are your politics harming the same people you're coming to for help for like for your research work because it then it doesn't kind of match up you're coming because you want to do this research because in the end you want to help me but you're harming me on this other side so i think we definitely have to in this section of the globe start to understand that our knowledge our oral traditions our in our intangible heritage knowledge is such a leverageable and powerful resource that i really think that if we all came together and kind of like said no you don't have access to this until you kind of do something that makes this exploitation less i think we have something we have something to make a change i think in the peripheral world uh there's a lot of work that must be done in terms of our relationship with heritage our relationship with uh various forms of colonialism and heritage and that's one of the other things that I wanted to talk about also uh because although 
repatriation for a lot of cultural artifacts is very, very important, it is also not the ultimate and end goal. And what kind of our conversation about neutrality, neutrality of whiteness and neutrality of the museum as a space becomes particularly important is when it comes to this kind of idea that whiteness imposes of itself as being the sole arbitrator of conflict and disagreement in the peripheral world. And it is a difficult, it's a hard pill to swallow to admit the fact that, you know, we are still not at a point where we can have conversations about heritage in a reasonable way. But if the opportunity is denied by a presumably neutral white actor, agent, then we will never be able to develop the kind of intellectual tools which will allow us to to come to a more digestible conclusion about what heritage means to us and how we can share it and what we can do with it together because as long as we're treated as oh these people are just never going to be able to come to terms with their past so we might Mm -hmm. as well be the rightful custodians and of course the idea that whiteness is in any way neutral is also kind of hilarious because after this entire colonial relationship how can they claim to be neutral about the heritage of the people that they have presided over exactly and uh, i read this book about by jp singh called sweet talk and it kind of blew my mind because just going back to the ngo and colonialism they never stopped taking it's and he did the math, he crunched the numbers, and he said that even with um, the humanitarian aid that they give the peripheral world, they take out three times the amount that they put in. And so even when they're coming and they're saying that, you know, you have to come to terms, you have to deal with that trauma, you're not ready yet, it's kind of like you're purposely underdeveloping this side of the world and you're using this humanitarian aid narrative to facilitate that. And you are allowed to do that because humanitarian aid is seen as something that whiteness gives to the rest of the world. It's like this kind of um, modern day version of the white man's burden, right? And it's the whole idea of neutrality is what kind of mythifies it into being something that not mythifies it sorry it distracts from the idea that that taking that giving facilitates the taking and facilitates you being stuck in the same position economically or politically that you have are trying to get out of Does that make sense yeah yeah absolutely and it's also kind of crucial from the aspect of i mean from from the definition of what it means to be sort of like taking something because even though it's not quite like early 20th century where i mean there's a lot of that also i mean extraction of resources uh, there is uh, there's places both in turkey and india where foreign companies are kind of like coming in destroying the natural environment to be able to just ex- extract the resource there is that kind of stuff still 
Mm. But there is also specifically from the from the, in the kind of cultural sector, it is an industry essentially. And one of the things that you talk about in the article also is the kind of money that is involved in uh, in heritage preservation. And a lot of the times, the kind of institutions who arbitrate what constitutes legitimate ways of doing heritage preservation, they happen to be Western institutions mm -hmm. uh, that we are kind of systematically kept out of. So the kind of employment opportunities that are involved in international heritage preservation, the kind of funding that is received through these kinds of projects, we are usually kept out of these. I mean, is this your experience also? It has been, and it's, it's very kind of underhanded, I feel, the way that it is done, because the story they sell you is, you can, if you are like, if you can get the education, if you can get um, the experience, everyone has a fair shot of moving around the world, like mobility, everyone is equal. But when it, it, that's not the fact, like you have to be in Europe, you have to be paid a certain wage above a certain threshold. And if you don't get paid that threshold, you can't work and you can't legally stay there. And in museum jobs, from what I understand, everything is beyond this threshold, mm. below this threshold. And so it's kind of like technical loopholes, which I don't know if they're intentional, that sounds very conspiracy theorist, but I don't necessarily think it's accidental. It could be just like systemic, systematic. I don't know, I'm not entirely sure how to use that word, but it, it's just, it's frustrating. It's really frustrating. And it's, uh, I just, I went to this conference and I was presenting a paper where I made a very intentional decision to use peripheral world sources. And only if I couldn't find a peripheral world source, would I go and use a global north source. And I, I was talking about a certain country and I used someone who was very active on social media and like she was a policy analyst and she had this really amazing kind of educational background, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the kind of critiques I got was, who is this person? We don't know this person. What makes her opinion worthy? I was like, she was born in the country. She lived in the country. Who else knows the country better than her? And, and she's, she's active politically. She's active. Terms, yeah. She's active, yeah. And it's just that because she wasn't white, because she hadn't had a traditional kind of Euro-American uh, career trajectory, and because they didn't necessarily recognize her name, her opinions held no weight. Mm. I think a lot of the times, in terms of finding uh, jobs in these kinds of industries, it's also about you're kind of expected to... Mm, what's the word for it, submit to their idea of what they consider to be neutrality. Uh, like you said, like if you are interested, I mean, this is kind of like a huge deal in Turkey right now, especially with the Hagia Sophia thing. I think there's a lot of different aspects to it. Uh, 
it's 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 it gets people so easily excited that I feel compelled to say I'm neither for nor against uh, Hagia Sophia being open for prayer. I'm just kind of there's ups and downs to both sides, but in within the context that we're talking about now, uh, I think the rejection of Hagia Sophia as a ritual and religious space is exactly the kind of idea of neutrality that is being enforced by international international cultural institutions so that it, it ties into what we were talking about earlier if you want to use this space as for the purposes that it was intended for by the way i also think that even as if it was built as a uh, as a christian cathedral it was a place that was intended for religious worship it was not it was never constructed as a place that was intended for people taking selfies <laughs> i don't think so <laughs> so especially for like abrahamic religions whose uh idea of a god is almost textually binded to each other all three of them mm-hmm. there is no theological reason for a christian space being used for muslim worship or vice versa the political conjecture that it was done in is extremely problematic there can be very legitimate concerns about what the uh, current government is going to, how they're going to preserve uh, the kind of iconography that is forbidden in Islam. All of these questions are absolutely legitimate questions that need to be asked. But the kind of knee-jerk freaking out about a secular place being converted into a religious place, I find that objection to not be legitimate. I am with you. I mean, I feel the objection should be more around why aren't we having a discussion about using this place as a kind of like for both religions? Like, why aren't we exploring other options? And as well, like this, as you said, this place was never supposed to be neutral. And I I think also the discussion that needs to be had, and I'm not entirely sure how what it is like there but I feel like people should be feel at least over here with a certain not going to mention it but a certain heritage space there is a fear about having different kind of a nuanced discussion about this space and I think that there shouldn't be that fear sure we have these discussions we can repurpose spaces we can like these spaces changed over time. They're going to change over time. It's just part of how these spaces work. But the moment you, you kind of say, this is how it is. And if you don't agree with me, your life is in danger. Then that it, it kind of takes away from the, the spirit of the place. Yeah, I, I'm kind of tempted to mention what space you're talking about because I think it's kind of crucial also, but if you insist on not saying could. its name no, at all. I think we could. I think we could. It's the Babri Masjid. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. I think, it's, I think it would be... We got a lot of Turkish listeners. I think it would be really, really important because in Turkey, nobody knows about Babri Masjid or what happened there. And actually something really, really interesting happened the other day i typed um oh sorry, I Masjid, Co- okay. no no uh-huh. i went to google and i typed in um conversion of babri masjid 
And Google on the side showed me links to Hagia Sophia. It's just, to me, it's completely like mind blowing. Like usually when people say stuff like, oh, I don't see the mainstream media talking about this. Like I am kind of like, you must have heard it someplace. So obviously some media source has told you about this. So what, yeah. why are you freaking out? But I was still quite surprised by the fact that the construction of a new Hindu place of worship in on the place of the Babri Masjid has been totally, entirely overshadowed by Hagia Sophia in, in terms of the international news. I think, yeah, I think maybe that just off the top of my head, maybe because Turkey's closer to kind of Europe and it's the whole, it's, it's turning into a mosque and there's a whole Islamophobia in yeah, the world absolutely. right now. I would wonder why, if that was an issue, if that was kind of a factor. But it's interesting that you bring that up because I was Googling the Hagia Sophia and just kind of trying to understand what was happening. And there was a lot of kind of um, articles about it in the Indian news sphere. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest critiques was it's turning into a mosque and India isn't saying anything about it. And I did not understand the link or the uh -huh. jump. I still don't. I don't understand why this would be something that the national government would have to say something about. Uh, I mean, but it kind of ties into your Google yes, search. Yes. I think if you could just, uh, I don't, you don't want to like go really, really deep into this like Babri Masjid issue, but I think for a lot of the kind of Middle Eastern audience who's not so much familiar with the South Asian context, it will be at least helpful to, I think, give them a, um, give them like a kind of context and kind of like a 101 about like what Babri Masjid is and why it's so important. I, okay, I'm going to try, but I, I, I have a feeling you know more about this than I do because oh, I, I don't think so. legitimately just know bits and pieces because no one in my immediate circle really talks about it. I do know about it in the context of the 19 uh, of the 1990s riots um, because I had just I was a baby and I was in the hospital and that's the story that gets tossed around within my family about that heritage space because my mom had to drive through the riots to get to the hospital to visit me so that's kind of my point of context to the to the whole situation. But from what I understand, there was a Supreme Court case because the, the Hindu community and the Muslim community, both, both for very different, and I feel I'm not entirely sure of valid reasons, want to claim that space to worship. I think that in the Hindu context, it has something to do with, um, I, I believe it's a belief that one of the gods was there or visited that place. Um, I really, I, I just, I really don't know anything more than they both want to claim that space. And in, in, in the 1990s, um, when it was the mosque, they, it was, I think, targeted violence, violently targeted. And then that went to, it turned into a court case and that court case went to the Supreme Court. And recently the Supreme Court decided that there would no longer be a mosque 
that it was it belonged to kind of the Hindu community. I I genuinely I'm not trying to kind of no no of course I mean yeah. it's a difficult these are difficult subjects to talk about and like I I really don't want you to feel like uncomfortable about it. Oh no no I genuinely don't know more about it. That's what ah, I meant. Ah right uh, right right. Okay, yeah. Okay. I, I I'm not deliberately being vague. It's just the I because in my family that the story is the riots. No one really talks about it. Of course. Yeah. Of course. And this is the thing. Also, this comes back to like the crucial thing about heritage that. The, the aspect of not talking about it, that, which is kind of crucial. I had written another article before about the 2013 Gezi protests and how uh, the, basically a lot of people kind of had an uprising against the national government for its planned uh, urban improvement project in a park. They wanted to keep the park and the government wanted to build a uh, shopping mall there. And it kind of became a very kind of progressive cause but a lot of people had forgotten that the park itself was built over an Armenian cemetery. So like a lot of the times, a lot of the buildings there, allegedly they have been built by using the tombstones that were torn off from the, from the cemetery. Uh, so heritage makes us uncomfortable. And, uh, and that is precisely why we should be developing new ways of talking about heritage and if we are denied access to our own heritage then we have almost no choice but to ignore what has happened definitely and i think i think that heritage is a way to kind of because it has so many layers of stories attached to it it can be really old stories but the more recent stories it could be some way that we kind of heal from intergenerational trauma that comes from being colonized or comes from being put into situations that we necessarily we don't we never should have been put into and if if we're only talking about heritage on the level of it's so beautiful it's outstanding huge like uh, global value and you know like things like that I think we miss the, sh the opportunity to really dive into something that is much more meaningful mm. absolutely and what makes it also interesting I suppose like when you mentioned that heritage has multiple layers to it I mean the English and the French are just as much as part of the peripheral heritage as what we consider to be ourselves because they have ruled us i mean for in, in in very different ways for very different lengths of time uh mm -hmm. but they are crucially a part of the way we see ourselves and our heritage definitely and that is something i kind of in my head struggle because it's never had to be in an actual situation like it's like a thought kind of struggle but what do you kind of do with it like i what do you it, it happened i think it's important to talk about but then i i feel uncomfortable because the same same kind of arguments that i would use about you know you have to talk about it it's a way to talk about it are what people use for the the statues of slave owners in the global north and i i don't like the idea that the same kind of argument 
it kind of gives it a bad taste in my mouth. Of course. I think it's useful in terms of understanding or grappling with a lot of self-hate issues that arise from uh, our perceived disconnection from our own heritage. Because Definitely. it kind of muddies... This is the thing, the kind of like fanaticism that arises around heritage is comes from this kind of fixation with a pure heritage. Uh, mm-hmm. But we are all mongrels now, and we just have to live with the fact that we are mongrels, and all of these different <laughs> things are part of our heritage. And uh, instead of self-flagellating about, I mean, this is this is this is this is a tightrope that I walk on a lot. Also, I mean, like okay. I'm emotionally absolutely there. Like I often feel like I'm disconnected from my heritage, that I do not even kind of this this feeling of not being deserving of the heritage that was given to me either by my parents or by by the, the linguistic depth that my language offers to me, the kind of epic poetry in my own language or the literature that I feel like I've been violently cut off from my heritage. But all the other things that I have kind of consumed in my life as opposed to consuming pure Turkish national heritage have also added something to me, you know, like the, the experience of pop music that I have listened to or like being a metalhead for so many years, aside from giving me a um, spinal disc herniation, <laughs> has also given me a way of appreciating, quote unquote, my own heritage in a way that people did not in 1700s. You know? it's, it's a new, Definitely. fresh look on absolutely everything. I, I definitely agree. And I wonder if, I mean, the idea that heritage is very fixed is also kind of a a very non-peripheral world idea. Maybe it was started from in the global north and maybe accepting the fact that your cultural heritage is kind of like the palimpsest of your experiences that you've accumulated as long as you've existed maybe that's kind of like a form of resistance to that idea. Mm-hmm. What is a form of resistance to what idea? Just kind of disengaging from the idea that cultural heritage, like Indian cultural heritage is mm. XYZ, ABC. Turkish cultural heritage is XYZ, ABC. Absolutely. Rather, Indian cultural heritage is whatever I, as an Indian woman, have accumulated culturally throughout my existence on this planet. That is my Indian cultural heritage. And mixtures between heritages existed long before what we understand to be kind of like global colonialism too. This is not something that, that multiculturalism is not something that white people have brought into existence in the last hundred years. This has been happening. And, uh, now now they are a part of it even though they don't have any spice in their cuisine they have <laughs> they have they have brought something into it and we just i suppose have to uh, live with that rather uncomfortable fact definitely i agree well i we have come to the end of our conversation it was absolutely wonderful having you thank you for having me it was a really interesting and really fun experience it was like it really brought a kind of like emotional depth to the article that you wrote about we got to hear about how the, that potato head experience for one thing <laughs> that, that was that was really illuminating too well thanks for joining and hope to speak to you soon thank you for having me